So there are some uh, metaphors that point to things. And so if I were to say something like the gridiron, you would think of football. Good, okay. Um, the great Minnesota get-together. State Fair, very good. You're so good so far. Huge Dale. Sprawl of America. A place for fun in your life. You think Mall of America. Okay, wow. You guys are sh- Thunderdome. Homer Dome. Yeah, what was once the Metrodome. What about the church? What metaphors come to mind when you think about the church? I think one that comes to mind most often to a lot of people is the word the body. We think of the body. There's a passage of scripture, a number of them, but specifically that Paul writes about comparing the church to a body with all its members and parts. There's a great passage in Revelation that speaks about the bride, right? The church is the bride of Christ. Maybe one not as familiar, but one that was important to the New Testament writers was the new Israel. The church is seen as the new Israel. The more common one is people of God. But there is one that stands out. In fact, the church is primarily often called the family. And you see that because of the terminology that is used, such as brothers and sisters and God's children. All kinds of metaphors around a close-knit structure similar to what most of us experienced growing up. We are family. And family is one of the building blocks of all society and culture. And it was God's idea right from the very first days of creation. And the Bible affirms this throughout. Paul will say in his letter to the church in Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 10, after he has been encouraging them to love one another, he says, and in fact, you do love all God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. Peter, as he writes to the church throughout Asia Minor, says in 1 Peter 2.17, Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And then in chapter 5, verse 10, he says, Resist your enemy, the devil, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world, is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. There is this idea that there is family that you have that you don't even know about, that live throughout different parts of the world. And some of you have experienced that. You've you've traveled, maybe you've done a missions trip, where you've just traveled around the world, and then you meet someone, and there's this connection that you have, not because of anything else, but the fact that you both are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, and there's something deep and dynamic about that. Right? And, 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 you, and if you've ever experienced that, or the first time I remember experiencing it, I remember thinking to myself, this is something really powerful. I don't even know this person, but yet our hearts connect at a level because of something that God our Father has done through Jesus Christ, through his Spirit. One of the primary pictures God gives of the church is that of family. And for those of you, who, again, who love roadmaps, we're going to be looking at three aspects of this idea of the family. And we're going to look for a moment at the importance of seeing ourselves as family. 
the implications then of seeing ourselves as family. And then I want to talk a little bit about the invitation to be a part of the family. So the importance of seeing ourselves as family is, is found throughout the early church, and especially as you read it in Scripture. It's one of the most oft-used metaphors. And we can just read the Bible, and you, it's very easy to do it. You just read by it, and it doesn't even connect. We, we fail to notice it, I think, because it's so familiar. I had someone in, the, uh, in our church, Ray Ellis, in fact, just about a year ago, kind of pulled me aside, maybe it was less than that um, time ago, but he, he said, you know, why aren't we calling ourselves brothers and sisters? And that was one of the things that kind of jogged my thought around this whole series. Why aren't we? I mean, that's, that's what they do in the South, but, you know, we shouldn't be doing that up here anyway. So over the past few generations, it's really interesting. If you just think about it, we've had some dominant views or metaphors of the church. And it's often because of what you see as the lead or senior pastor. So let me just kind of run through for you. If you go back to the late 1800s and early 1900s, it's, it's interesting. The senior pastor, you may not realize that in that day, you know, most people would get primary education. So if you got ever a secondary education, that was a big deal. And if you went on to college or university, that was really huge. Very few did that. But a lot of the people who would do that were be, would be pastors because they would be trained and educated so that they could come back and teach their people. And so that would happen. And so the, the pastor was the one who was the most educated. And he was respected for that. And he was the teacher. And he'd come back to the church, which was a place of learning about God's word and the Bible. But it was more than that. The pastor was also that taught about life. And it was the one, he was the one who talked about the culture and the world in which we live in. Because he was the most traveled. He was the most well-cultured. He would come back and he'd be able to share stories where uh, he had been and, and things he had seen and, and he'd have opportunities to travel even as a pastor and he'd come back and he was considered the teacher. And then in the early 1900s, in about 1960s, pastors were still at this point quite respected with the rise of medical doctors because they had knowledge and know-how to mend and repair. And as pastors at that time, they were seen as shepherd who cared for the flock. It didn't matter if the flock grew. It didn't matter if the flock remained the same size for years and years. They just wanted to be cared for by their shepherd. And then about the 1970s until about now, as churches in the suburbs, especially suburbs, began to grow, so also did this phenomenon of megachurches. And the senior pastor at that point began to be viewed more as a CEO. He was the CEO over a multi-million dollar organization with a large staff and a much larger, quote, customer base. And the predominant view of the church, maybe not stated out loud, but implicitly was influenced by this CEO pastors over a church that was a corporation. And what became interesting there is the corporation was filled with customers who consumed. And we have a whole phenomenon that throughout history it's changed. And kind of what I want to pray, you know, kind of prayerfully ask us to consider as a church is that we get back to the importance of seeing ourselves as a family. And we see ourselves as brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and sons and daughters. And that we elevate this truth in line with how the church first saw itself. It was so important in the New Testament 
That John in his gospel begins and he talks about there's a new covenant, a new promise. And as he begins it, he says, although Jesus made the world, the world did not recognize him when he came. This is in John 1. So he's right in the very beginning stating this. Even in his own land among his own people, the Jews, his own family, he was not accepted. Only a few would welcome him and receive him. But to all who received him, he gave the right to become, catch this, children of God. All they needed to do is trust in him to save them. All those who believe this are reborn. Not a physical rebirth resulting from human passion or plan, but from the will of God. And John builds on this idea of the Old Testament where God calls a person and from this person he begins to develop a family, a family that becomes a nation. And this nation is the people of God, the family of God. And now he says the family of God is not some physical, organic thing by blood, but now we're beginning to see because of what Jesus has done. All people, whoever wants to, around the world can now become as a spiritual relationship through Jesus to the Father, they can become the family of God. And that's what we are. Primarily, we're family. Jesus declares this as well. At one point in one of the, what I call one of those watershed moments, he makes this really clear. Matthew 12, 46 through 50. He says, it says, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers showed up. They were outside trying to get a message to him. Someone told Jesus, and Jesus is teaching, and someone, you must, maybe there's a break or something. Someone comes up to him, Jesus, you know, your mother and brothers are out here wanting to speak with you. And Jesus didn't respond directly, we see in Scripture. This is exactly what Matthew tells us, but said, Who do you think my mother and brothers are? He then stretched out his hand toward his disciples, Look closely. These are my mother and brothers. Obedience is thicker than blood. The person who obeys my heavenly father's will is my brother and sister and mother. And so Jesus, just like John in the beginning of his gospel, redefines this because it's so important for us to see ourselves this way. In the New Testament epistles, the letters written by Paul and Peter and John and some others use family language. In fact, throughout the New Testament, you'll see that the common words for one another are brothers and sisters. In fact, the Greek word adelphos, meaning brother, as we get this, the word Philadelphia, you know, that idea of, of um, city of brotherly love, which is anything but. But anyway, um, in the feminine form, Adelphi, meaning sister, appears over 300 times. In fact, precisely 344 times it appears in the New Testament. And over 80% of these words refer to the idea of brothers and sisters who are part of God's family, spiritually related to one another. Very few, 8 out of 10 refer to it that way, only about 2 out of 10 refer to it regarding physical blood relatives. And so you see throughout the New Testament, this metaphor, this idea that the church is not a corporation, it's not primarily a flock, it's really a family is incredibly important. And I don't think it's important at any time in history, in a sense, more important than it is today. With the disintegration and breakdown of the family. With a world full of consumers. What does it mean to be family? You know, the early church in the first 200 years, the idea of the church being known as a family was, was so recognized that they actually were persecuted for this. There were three or four charges that were brought against the church by Rome. When they would go, they would go with these kind of ideas in mind. Here is one of the charges. They, they said the early believers were insurrectionists. They didn't acknowledge Caesar as their ruler. And because of that, they were bad citizens. That was one of the charges. 
One of the, the other charges, the second charge, was this fact, that they were cannibalistic. And you're kind of going, what do you mean cannibalistic? Because it said, they would, they were, it was heard that they actually would get together, they would have the service, and at the end of the service, or at some point in the service, they would eat and drink the body and blood of, of a person. And so they were charged for cannib- being cannibalistic. The, the third thing that people don't realize in that day, and this was a charge, you can go back in history and see this, the Rome charged them as being incestuous. You know, incestuous. Yeah, because they would talk about people. They would be people who would actually be living together. They were married and they would have children together and they called themselves brother and sister. That's how familiar the idea of the family of believers was in that day. So much so that they were persecuted. And it is so important, as I was thinking about this, that we are see ourselves this way. People are hungry for a place where they can be known and be loved for who they are. Something a healthy family does well, right? You have that feeling sometimes when you go home, and you, and you know when you go home, it's a place where you can just be yourself. It's a place where you can be accepted for who you are. It's a place where you can be affirmed. It's, it, in many ways, it's, a, it's like a filling station. You go to the gas station to, to get in your, your car um, gas in order to be able to, to go on. There's a sense that the family is that way for people. And there's a lot of people who don't have that. They don't know what it means to have a family. People who do today come from dysfunctional families. Who, they're not really looking for perfect families, but they're looking for families that are honest and transparent. They're seeking to grow into deeper health and intimacy. Even our youth are looking for this. Last Monday morning, Phil Linskug, who is our senior high associate working with our youth, shared these thoughts. My name is Phil Linskog, the uh, high school associate here at Wyzetta Free. And Matt, it has been a blast over this past year to be able to work with the high school students and families. Uh, in, the, in the last three, four months, there's been a stirring in our group uh, to become more of a family. And a few weeks ago, we had a few students who, who came up to me and said, Phil, we got to make this place a family. Sometimes church feels like school, but with religion. And I was like, this is awesome. These students are at a spot where they want to own their faith and own their ministry and own their youth group and, and really make it a group that is authentic and, and, a, and a family. And the, the coolest part of this all is the fact that they're owning it. They're doing it all themselves. A few weeks ago, we had uh, a, a kickoff um, event and, uh, with kickball and a grill out uh, before youth group. And the students ran with it and owned the entire thing. I was going to jump in and help out, get some stuff from the grocery store, so they all had it. And during the middle of the day, uh, before the event, I got a call from a few students who were at the grocery store. And they're listing off everything they got, you know, 50 hot dogs, buns, and all these different things. And as I'm sitting back in my chair, I think, man, they don't need me. This is awesome. They, they're taking this entire thing. So we get done talking and kind of going through a list of what they've got. And I say, well, you guys need me to help out with anything, grab anything, be anywhere for you guys? And they say, no, I think we're good. And there was a long pause. And they go, man, that's weird. We don't need you. That's just a cool spot for me to be at and for this group to be at, of being able to foster a family and something that's not forced, but something that's organic, something that's authentic, where... uh, 
they're just coming together out of a desire to be in community with one another. Isn't that cool? I'm going to ask us to pray because they're on retreat this weekend right now. Father, pray for, for Phil and others in, in that family, our family. It's a way for how they're modeling family. You sometimes have, have said in a word that uh, the young will lead the old, the weak, the strong. God, thank you for how you're leading through them. Bless them, we pray this weekend in Christ's name. Amen. So what are the implications uh, if we are to see ourselves as family? What does it mean when Jesus looked at his mother and brothers and sisters and then looked at his disciples and said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. What did he intend? Jesus redefines what it means to be a part of his family. And it isn't about blood or being brought up in the church or having been dedicated or confirmed or baptized in the church. It's not about raising your hand at camp or a Bible conference. It's not about religion. It's about a relationship with God, first and foremost. And so I want to share with you about a relationship, roles, and then rule. Those are three things under the implications. A relationship is, is the fact that, that every person who comes in the family of God is adopted be, by this father who loves them. This father who sends his son Jesus in order to make a way that every person can come into relationship with him so that it wouldn't have to be a blood thing. So it wouldn't have to be, you'd have to be a member of the Jewish family. It would be that you could come into a relationship with him simply through trusting Jesus. And just like when Jesus walked here, follow him. John says that. Only a few would welcome and receive Jesus. But to all who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. All they needed to do was trust him to save them. All those who believe this are reborn, and not a physical rebirth, resulting from human passion or some plan of man, but from the will of God. From the will of God. You have the opportunity. It's not about cleaning up your life so that somehow you are good enough to be called a son or a daughter. I was with someone this week who his, uh, his son-in-law and daughter have three kids who are older and they adopted two children. And he shared with us the fact that these kids were not really the healthiest of kids. They were born from an Indian mother and a, and a black father. And, and this Indian mother was on drugs at the time. And both kids have repercussions from the drugs that she had taken. And what I think is really interesting, they went ahead anyway and adopted those kids. They didn't go and say, you know what, you get these kids cleaned up, you take care of all their health problems, you get them in good shape, then we'll adopt them. They went and they looked and they took and they brought those kids into their family. And they now are in the process of with them as an entire family, in a sense, helping to raise these kids. And part of the process is that they are, through their love and their care, beginning to help those kids become all that they can be. All that God meant them to be. So a lot of times you get this idea that to be part of the family of God, you know, you got to attend, you got to do this, you got to do that. And if you can kind of get your life cleaned up enough so that God can accept you, it's not like that at all. It's just like adoption. 
That's when he says, he looked at me, he said, listen guys, it's, it's, it's this, that if you trust and believe in me, it's not by the plan of a man, it's not by some kind of attendance that you have, it's not by cleaning up your life, it's by simply, if you would come to a place and recognize that God's spirit has been seeking after you to bring you into his family just the way you are. You may have from your background and all these things, you may have a whole lot of things and you bring that just like those two little kids who were adopted and you just are brought into the family if you just open your heart to him and do that. That's why he makes these statements. All they needed to do was trust him to save them. It's about following and trusting someone, Jesus, who is good and gracious and willing to clean up the life of anyone who comes to him. It's not about believing the right things or behaving in the right way, but it's merely believing Jesus, plain and simple. It's believing that Jesus can save you. And this isn't just about eternity. This is about now. He can begin to save you in relationship to those that you are maybe a person married to or a family or where you work or the things going on in your life. Jesus has the ability to bring life into your situation. He has the ability to bring hope to you. In a few moments, as we get into this a little bit later, I just want to share, if you have never opened your heart and, 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 and come into that adopted relationship, I want to invite you to do that. I want you to be thinking about it. It's not some kind of emotional decision. It's a deliberate, thoughtful decision that says, I want to be a child of God. There's roles, though. Are you fulfilling in the family different relational roles within the family? There are sons and daughters and brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and grandparents. That's why we had three different generations pray up here this morning during the worship time. Paul speaks of Timothy as his son. To Timothy, he says, my true son in the faith. The idea that you have a, have a spiritual son. Paul had a spiritual son. He encourages people in the church to treat one another as family members. And looking at one another, he says, with respect and love, as you would in your family. So in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1, Paul gives instructions to the family of faith. The message reads it this way. Don't be harsh or impatient with an older man. Talk to him as you would your own father. And to younger men as your brothers. Reverently honor an older woman as you would your mother. And the younger woman as sisters. He's constantly saying, begin to start seeing yourself in this way, in the implications of this. John, at one point in a letter that he writes to churches much years, years later, probably around 80 or so A.D., he says, I write this letter to you all as my dear children because your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. That's the adoption part. You have been forgiven and adopted into the family. But then he goes on and says, I write to you who are now fathers because you have known him who has always existed. He's constantly giving you this idea that we're a family. So I want you to think for a second. Are you a father or possibly a mother spiritually to someone? So I want to get real clear on the implications of this. I mean, it's real easy to go through our life and to live our life and to be in relationship with our friends and others, but have you, have you ever thought of yourself in the family of God, the implications of that, that you are truly a spiritual father or mother to someone? I was uh, reading in this book by John Orper called Soul Keeping, and he has this great story about Dallas Willard, who, um, as he, he shares this story, he says, I, I was, I'm interviewing Dallas Willard at an at a event called Catalyst West. If you're a young leader in, the wor- in, in, in that world, you know of a conference called Catalyst. 
A gathering begun several years ago in Atlanta that exploded so in popularity that the West Coast version was needed a few years later. The one is taking place in Irvine, California. And John had been invited to this to interview Dallas Willard. Thousands of young pastors and wannabe pastors and musicians and artists are in the room with a fog machine and lighting artistry and sound systems that make it a kind of 21st century evangelical indoors Woodstock. I feel like I'm the oldest person in the room culturally, if not chronologically, although Dallas is 20 years older than me. Dallas wears a jacket and a tie. It is for him, so of his generation... It is for him a gesture of respect for his audience. And John writes, no one else in the room wears a tie. No one else in the room owns a tie. No one else in the room would even know how to tie a tie. (laughs) On the stage, I asked Dallas questions about ministry. His response is this, what matters most is not the accomplishments you achieve. What matters most is the person you become. There's kind of a look on a lot of people's faces like, huh. He speaks of eternity and how the soul is formed and how temptation works and why sin is so destructive. He speaks of the slow, unglamorous building of character in this age of the instant. I worry about how this is going. Other speakers at the event speak with great passion while Dallas speaks in a cultivated monotone of an academic. Other speakers tell dramatic stories of radical devotion and and hellish suffering, but Dallas tells no stories at all. And when he is done, the whole crowd of 20-something tattooed dudes leap to their feet. Dallas is presented with a kind of Lifetime Achievement Award. They cheer as if he's Jack Nicholson at the Oscars. And I'm at a loss, says John, for this kind of response. And then it occurs to me, The soul searches for a father. These 20-somethings are looking for fathers. They're looking for mothers. I did something in a church a, a few years, a number of years back, called Discipling for Dummies. Because I had felt like what had happened in the church is that it got really, really difficult for people who had grown in wisdom and experience to feel like they could be a father or a mother. Because they felt like discipling meant I had to have a Bible college course. I had to have all kinds of um, understanding to be able to teach so that when I would sit down with someone, I, I could ex- you know, go through and teach them God's word. And then I, I just said to people, you know what, it really isn't that hard of a thing if you want to be a spiritual father or mother. Because you, many of you, have more Bible in you than you have any understanding. It's actually weaved into your heart and soul. The best thing you might do is once a month meet with a spiritual son or daughter and just listen to them. And when they raise questions, and when they start talking about their life, Don't try and fix everything. Don't have all the answers, but just listen and then be able to share as the Holy Spirit leads you what you have learned. That's called discipling for dummies. We're a family. The soul yearns for a father and mother that might lead them in the things that matter most because the culture is telling them things that don't matter at all. And then I ask you this question, are we brothers and sisters to one another? What does brothers and sisters mean? 
There's all kinds of directions I could go in this. What does it mean? How do you treat your brother? If you treat your brother the way my brother and I treated us, then we have real problems, right? But let me ask you this in this context, just as you might have a spiritual father or mother, or you may have that capacity to do that, are you a brother or sister to one another? Are you encouraging one another? One of the greatest joys, and I've shared this on a number of occasions, I've had in the past few years, at a point when God began to convict on me the idea of mentoring and bringing some people together, is these two groups that I meet with on Monday morning and Tuesday morning. We get at 6.30, we meet at two different Paneras, one, at, one on Monday, one on another on Tuesday, and what I have found, just even as last week, I, I see the trail of emails are so cool, because I've seen, I've seen a band of brothers come together who at the same station in life are encouraging one another to grow in Christ. One of the guys is a very, very new believer, came from an atheist background. He writes, guys, I've always looked for God and wondered why I've never found him, hoping I'd wake up one day and he'd be standing by my bedside in the flesh and I'd think, finally, I've been waiting for this so I can start believing in you, God. I just got this this week, this, this email. I have been struggling with purpose and feeling in the dark, but I realize today that God has just revealed himself to me through you guys. You suggested the purpose-driven life, and I have bought and read the first chapter, and at the end it says, you may have felt in the dark about your purpose in life. Congratulations, you're about to walk into the light. I hope you guys will feel comfortable discussing challenges in your life because God spoke through you guys to help me. And I am grateful for your friendship. And then this guy, who I don't think knows a lot of the Bible, quotes, everything got started in him and finds its purpose in him, Colossians 1.16, which I think he got from the book. But anyway, then a guy, an hour or two later, from the group, sends an email, says, thanks for sharing. You have been such a blessing to our group, and I appreciate your ability to keep things real. Life will continue to bring both challenges and questions, but in capital letters, together, as a band of brothers, we can support one another. This is a primary purpose of small groups. Doing life, quote, together, he says in, quote, in capital letters, to know Christ and make Christ known. I am thankful we are on this journey of life together, capital letters, and none of us are going about life alone because they're brothers they're in a family and then another guy a few hours later chimes in we have all been through doubts and troubled times i'm so glad you are a part of the group you help us all all open up to real issues that hit us in life it is a great group that has changed my life in the past year i am looking forward to more monday mornings where we can all reset for a new week and i just ask you do you have brothers and do you have sisters that are challenging you to become more like jesus and are you in the position of being a son or daughter maybe you need that in your life Maybe you need to recognize the fact that you might need someone in some areas to parent you, to come alongside you. A month or so ago, my wife asked me, Kevin, do you have a mentor? And she recently had entered into a mentoring relationship in order to grow in some specific areas in her life. And I said, yeah. And uh, she asked, who? And I said, you mean now? And she said, yeah. Yeah. She said, yeah, it would seem it might be a good time as you travel some new path that you haven't traveled before to have someone with experience and maturity to walk with you. 
Now, I was convicted. I think I've told you before my wife is really wise. And I began to really pray about it. And I asked at a certain point a gifted man who, who, who loves God, who, is, who I believe is very wise, to kind of process with me on a monthly basis. Because right now, I know at a point in my life, there's some things that God needs to teach me. Are we humble enough to say, you know, maybe there's some things that I need to bring someone into my life? And then there's this rule. I didn't give you a bunch of rules. I just said there's one rule. Being a family member of Jesus is one thing and one thing only. Jesus said it, doing the will of the Father in heaven, right? Who's my brother and brothers and sisters? It's, it's to do the will of my Father in heaven. And, and, and following his will is really a simple thing. It means really expressing his heart. Simply said, if, if you're a child of God, you'll look like the Father's son. You'll, you'll have something that's characteristic about the Father. If you're a daughter who is following your heavenly Father, you will look like him. Your heart will reflect him. And what is that? It's not about rule-keeping, but it's, being, it's, it's not about being guided by a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's about being guided by one rule. James says it this way. He calls it in chapter 2, verse 8, the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus was asked to sum up the greatest commandment and the single law and will of God. What does it mean to do the will of God, our Father in heaven? And Jesus didn't bat an eye when he gave his answer. He looked at him and he basically said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The first is in the greatest commandment. And there's a second. There's really the, it's really two sides of one coin. If you love God, you will then love others. He says, then you will love your neighbor as yourself because all the law and the prophets, they actually hang on this. Everything that comes from that, every, every rule that comes from this comes from this one rule. Which means we are people that love. Paul says in Galatians 5, Verses 13 and 14, he says this, You, my brothers and sisters, catch it again, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge your flesh. Don't do the things that come natural to you. Rather, serve one another in love. What does it mean for us, then, as brothers and sisters, to serve one another in love? What are the implications of that? The way that we, we um, care for one another. What does it mean in the way that we might talk about someone? What does it mean in the way that we um, pray for one another? Because Paul says the entire law is summed up in a single rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. He also writes in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, I'll show you the most excellent way. There is one way that's really excellent. You can do all these kind of things, he says, but if you do this one, which is love. In Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, Paul writes, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So the invitation is simple. And we're not going to spend long on this part. I want to ask you again, because you may have been attending here for a period of time, are you a child of God? Have you ever opened your heart and said, you know what? I recognize that you came looking for me through Jesus Christ and on that cross you died to save me from myself and my own sin. And if you understand that the Spirit of God might be speaking to your heart right now and say, guess what? All, it, all you need to do, the right to become a child of God is simply this. Trust Jesus. Give your heart and life to him. Acknowledge your need of him and your sin. 
So I'm going to ask you if, you, if you want to do that, it's just a simple prayer. And the simple prayer is this. Jesus, thank you for coming to me. Thank you for revealing your love to me. I acknowledge my need. And I acknowledge my sin. And I ask you into my heart to be my life leader, to guide me. It's that simple. He's not so concerned about the words, just your heart. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to pray that. For those of you who have placed your trust in Jesus, here's the, here's the idea. I'm not inviting you to be a brother or sister, or father, mother, or son, or daughter. I'm telling you, you are a child of God, so you are a part of the family. Now it's a matter of being intentionally that way. You are playing a role in God's family, so it depends on how you're going to play it. And so here's the question of vacation. What kind of brother or sister or mother or father do you want to be? What does it look like for you? I want to conclude with an email I received from someone in our church, someone who has been here for uh, the past few years, wrote me this. And, and, and I just really ask you to, to catch this. Dear Pastor Kevin, having Beth as my spiritual mother and Wyzetta Free as my family, I think has been literally the difference between life and death for me. With my childhood and most of my adulthood being a life full of rejection and abandonment, I didn't know what it felt like to be loved and accepted by anyone, including the Father. I knew he loved me, but I didn't know what it felt like. I'm a very physical person, someone who just knowing isn't enough. But before Beth and Wyzetta Free, all I knew was struggles and letdowns and discouragement and being used and abused. I had several trust issues. I was accustomed to people offering to help, but with an agenda or ulterior motive. I was used to people using whatever information they got from me against me and to hurt me. And I was used to being judged and looked down on being worthless. Asking for help was a sign of weakness. And besides, there were many other people who were more worthy and deserving of help. So I learned to depend on myself and no one else. And when someone offered to help me, I always refused. Life was a very lonely and dark place. Now catch this. Since life with Beth and Wyzetta Free, all that's changed. Beth encourages me daily, and it's constantly telling me she's proud of me. She's just playing the role of a mother, Beth is. I've never heard from that from anyone before. No one has ever told me that they were, that they were proud of me or, or, or was I ever encouraged. In fact, it was always the opposite. When I come to church, I'm welcomed by so many wonderful people. The smiles and hugs I receive every time I am at church means the world to me. I have never felt so loved and so accepted as I do at Wyzetta Free. Through breath and through the church, I've been able to actually feel God's love all around me. It is wonderful. Bit by bit, I've been able to start trusting again. And what I've found with the people of Wyzetta Free is that they are genuine people willing to help because of they want to without strings attached. And they're willing to love with their whole heart, not just when it suits them. And I have gained a better sense of who I am as me and who I am in Christ. I am stronger, more confident, much more happier person than I, now than I was. It has been through Beth as a spiritual mother and Wyzetta Free as my family that I have now a deeper and more intimate relationship with my Heavenly Father. I now have a family I have always dreamed about. I can honestly say that the many holes of my past have left me are quickly being filled and there are a lot more positives in my life now than negatives. And she just says, thank you, Pastor, for your part in this journey. 
love and God bless. And then I wrote back a few lines and said, thank you. And then this is what killed it for me. She writes back, thank you. These past couple of years have been truly amazing. I didn't know life could be this good, that I could feel this love. To be honest, in the past, whenever I thought of my death, I would picture an empty funeral. I felt like no one would really care if I was gone. Like people would think, who? Who is this? I don't feel that way anymore. I don't picture an empty funeral anymore. Sometimes I feel like I'm dreaming. All this wonderfulness is just like a nice dream. But I know that it's not a dream. And I know it's real. God has blessed me in a major way. For me, this life I have right now is a modern-day miracle. That's what a church family does. Businesses and corporations don't do this. You do this when you're a family.